Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to our second podcast. I mean, who would have thought? We did one. I thought that's enough. But apparently, we have to do it every week. Darn. And, I know. Really. <laughs> and the idea is that, you know, we're going to talk about the news. and But just sort of, we, 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 you know, we've been doing What Doctors Don't Tell You since 1989. So we sort of know some stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about the news as well as give you the news. So on which point, time to put glasses on and just tell you a, a news item came out a couple of weeks ago from, um, the, uh, from the Netherlands um, that they had another look at mammograms, which, as you probably know, are routine screening program that every woman over the age of 50 in Europe and I believe still 40 in the US is um, invited to have in order to detect cancer. And the latest study has revealed that fully half of all the cancers that are being detected by mammogram are false positives, which is medical speak for seeing a cancer, but it's not actually there. And this is obviously very distressing for a number of reasons. Any woman told she has cancer, it ain't great news. And um, it often results in some form of treatment, even up to a mastectomy, where, which is breast removal. And yet, the cancer was never there. And the uh, researchers are sort of getting to the point of saying, maybe we've reached the tipping point here with mammograms, because, you know, suddenly the risk is getting to be as great as any benefit. And they're saying, maybe we need to take another look at this, See if there's better technology out there. But I know, Lynn, I know you've got lots to say about mammograms. Well, I mean, this is outrageous because when I think back to what doctors don't tell you and how we started in 1989, we were writing about this in the first year, the problem of mammograms, the not enough evidence about whether or not they work, the huge numbers of false positives. And here's the problem with mammograms. They're so sensitive, they, they pick up, lumps indiscriminately. So they pick up all sorts of things that are absolutely fine. They also pick up things like DCIS, which is called ductal carcinoma in situ, which has been made to be considered a precancer, but actually in the absolute vast majority of cases will never progress to cancer. And as Brian says, the problem with this is that it unleashes the whole of the medical treatment protocol, which is, you know, surgery, chemo, radiation, and all those kinds of things for something that is not dangerous. But the other side of the flip side of mammograms is that it also misses a lot of cancers that are there. So what's most outrageous of all about this news is that they're acting like there's no alternative. And there have been for many years two excellent alternatives with far better track records. One is ultrasound, which is with a sensitive operator can pick up a huge percentage of cancers far better than mammograms. And the other one is a newer technology called thermography, which picks up heat um, and is highly, highly sensitive. It picks up cancers in very, very early stages. So for anyone concerned about this and thinking that, you know, they're going for their annual mammogram, they should look at alternatives. 
And the other final point is to remember that mammograms cause cancer. They're a highly, highly powerful x-ray, and every x-ray you get can contribute to cancer, particularly in the aggregate. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about thermography, because, you know, the radiologist's worth is salt, even back in the 1980s, was using both methods, because uh, mammograms detect mass, uh, but uh, thermography um, detects Ma- detects energy and and growth and th- that's really what you want to find because <clears throat> growth means it's a fast growing cancer fast growing tumor and that's the sort that's going to be lethal and paradoxically of course a mammogram doesn't see that it can't detect growth at all so it doesn't know if it's benign, if it's malign, if it's growing, if it's not, it, it can't give you that information. And it's quite interesting because um, there was really good evidence for the efficacy of thermography right from the 80s and 70s. I was, I, I, you know, I've researched this. And um, one theory why it was never uh, taken up was because it was too sensitive and it meant that it was going to cause an overload to the medical system. Because as you say, Lynn, it could pick up cancers that were like eight, nine years away from being in any way serious. And of course, this meant uh, a lot of extra work for the for the oncologist. And they just thought, well, this is just too much. And so for that reason, a lesser technology mammography was was chosen instead. So, yeah, so I think uh, I think it is time for our public health services to rethink, reconsider. And Pop- retire. <laughs> and retire mammography. Uh, oh, yeah, well, yes, maybe, maybe, I thought you meant they retired, but no, <laughs> just retire the system. Yeah, there we go. All right, let's, on still staying on the subject of breast cancer, another really interesting uh, study came out uh, just the other week about BRAC1 or 2. Now, BRAC1 or 2 are genes that we all have. And they help, it produces a protein that helps block cancer. But when you have a faulty gene, which is often a genetic inheritance, it increases your chances of cancer. And of course, this hit the headlines back in 2013 when Hollywood film star Angelina Jolie uh, decided to have a double mastectomy because she had the faulty gene from her mother who had in her turn, died at the age of 56 from breast cancer. But the study coming out this week said, yes, BRAC1 or 2 faulty gene does increase your chance of cancer, but that cancer is no more lethal than the conventional standard cancer. So in other words, they're suggesting that women who do have this faulty gene actually have time you know you don't it's not a death sentence it's no more a death sentence than um, a standard standard breast cancer would be so rather than immediately uh, deciding to have a mastectomy you know you can you can spend a bit of time to see I mean what very roughly I mean ballpark figures uh, a a woman is likely uh, has a 12% chance of getting breast cancer uh, if you have the BRAC1 or 2 40 gene, that rises to about from uh, spread from 16 to 60% more likely to get breast cancer. Um, but 
very interestingly, because again, I've, I've researched this for the next issue of, of What Doctors Don't Tell You, um, there's a whole stack of things you can do um, to reduce, if you have the faulty gene, for example, exercise plays an incredibly important part and reduces your risk by 25%. Diet, of course, plays an important part. And so, you know, there is, it, it, A, it's not lethal necessarily, it's not necessarily a death sentence, and two, there is plenty you can do. Bottom line, don't panic. Well, even more than don't panic, really tease out those statistics. Now, I did a big story at the time that Angelina Jolie uh, decided to get her just-in-case mastectomy. And I was shocked when I started looking at some of the research. And that's, by the way, what we do all the time. We dig into the medical literature and we make that private conversation between doctors public. That's what, that's what our job is. And what I found that, you know, when people have, when women have a family history of breast cancer, as Angelina Jolie does, um, they have a tiny percentage um, of getting breast cancer, even with that gene, even with BRAC1 or BRAC2. And they account for a tiny fraction of the cancers in the UK. They have, they account for less than one-fifth of all familial cancer, believe it or not. And, you know, the vast majority of women who get breast cancer, eight out of nine women, don't have a family history of breast cancer. Um, and, you know, the other shocking thing about it is what they've, what they've, uh, they've come up with as the solution, the just-in-case double mastectomy. There is no evidence showing that that, that preventive prophylactic surgery, as they call it, actually increases survival, believe it or not. Um, when they've looked at that, um, they've also found that a lot of those women, almost half, suffer complications after surgery. So it's not the real point here. And this is what they're missing all the time that is really outrageous. The fact that an environmental trigger is what really ticks off cancer. To understand this, you have to understand how genes work. Genes are like the silent keys of a piano. They just sit there waiting to be played. And the thing that plays them, the thing that's really important here is uh, the quartet of atoms that sit above every gene, the epigenome, they are exquisitely sensitive to all kinds of environmental influences, from the air we breathe, to the water we drink, to the food we eat, to the friends we have, you know, the sum total of how we live our lives. They determine whether those piano keys get played. So you can sit there with a faulty gene, but that doesn't mean it's going to be expressed. And here's another really interesting and very important point. There was a study called the Women's Health Initiative, and it looked at hundreds of thousands of women to try to determine whether HRT was safe. They had to stop the study because there was such an excess of women getting cancer. Now, this goldmine of information of hundreds of, of thousands of women has been fantastic for many other researchers who have combed through it. And one set of researchers wanted to find out whether or not that, um, whether or not people with a familial history of breast cancer were more likely to get it. And they found it made no difference 
Family history of breast cancer made no difference as to whether or not women got cancer. The only thing that caused cancer that was linked to the cancer was an environmental trigger. And the environmental trigger in this case was HRT. Hmm. It's interesting because there was a study from Serbia as well, a year after Angelina Jolie's mastectomy. And they have really started to look at genetic inheritance. And they've uh, discovered thus far, it's an ongoing project, but early stuff coming out of it suggests that, uh, well, rather their bottom line is, in every case, epigenetics, the environmental triggers, trump genetics every single time. So, I mean, I think that's a story of great hope that, in fact, um, you know, whatever hand you've been given, you can actually do something about it. And here's what they never factor in too, Brian, mm. that really irritates me. The solutions, the just-in-case just mastectomy, the, um, also the, um, the um, uh, HRT, if they've had ovaries removed. Now, Angelina Jolie went on to get her ovaries removed too, so she's undoubtedly on HRT. Both of those things increase your risks of cancer. Silicone implants are, have been linked to, and other breast cancer inf, implants have been linked to a rare kind of breast cancer known as anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Um, and it's a form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the cancer that killed my mother. And so that's the solution causes cancer. And of course, HRT, even though they're now trying to poo-poo that Women Health Initiative study, that demonstrated a 60% more likely um, risk of getting breast cancer among women taking HRT. So the point is the solution is possibly more dangerous than the problem itself. Hmm. Okay. That's, uh, on slightly lighter note, you probably gather from our accents that I'm American and Lynn's English. No, no, the other <laughs> way around, surely. The other way around. So we say things differently. Lynn says tomato, and I say tomato, and all the rest of it. Only when I need to be understood over in this country. Right. So, so occasionally I adopt an English-type accent, but, but only rarely. But I say aluminium, and you say... Aluminium. Aluminium. So on which note, it's quite interesting, a group of scientists is looking for crowdfunding to do some proper independent research into the effects of aluminum, aluminium, in vaccinations. Now, some vaccinations no longer have aluminium in them, but the more recent HBV one does. And um, this particular initiative comes out of Copenhagen, uh, where a few women have become very concerned because their daughters have suffered terribly immediately after having had the HBV vaccine. And they've been asking the drug companies to research this. How safe is this really? Um, as you know, the HBV is designed to prevent cervical cancer. And um, young children, about around you know, teenagers from the age of 12 or so, are invited to have this vaccine. But, you know, it's had a lot of bad press. I mean, in Japan, they've banned it completely. And now they're saying, well, look, we, we're not entirely convinced 
of its safety. And we think that the aluminium, the aluminium salts in them, are the cause. And the vaccine companies have refused to research this. And so, as a result of that, they've got hold of a, a team of scientists to say, look, would you be prepared to do this? We are looking to raise 550,000 euros in order for you guys to research the safety of these vaccines. So right now they are crowdfunding uh, to raise this money. If you feel so moved, if you go to our website, wddty.com, and, and seek out a story called Scientists Seek Funding to Research Health Dangers of Aluminium in Vaccines, that's the headline. Search for that. You'll come to the story. You'll come to the link, and you can donate uh, to to which seems to be a very worthwhile cause. Which really, you know, the public should not be funding. You know, the drug companies who are making considerable sums of money from their vaccines should really be also checking their safety. I would have thought. This is pretty outrageous. I mean, all of the querying that we've had about aluminum over the years as an adjuvant, which is something that kickstarts vaccines to get them to work. Um, they've been using it for years in various vaccines. And there's been queries about it. It's been taken out of some of the vaccines. And the fact that it was put into the HPV vaccine is just shocking and immoral, um, given that. Um, the HPV vaccine, I remember when that first got launched in the UK, that was when we launched our magazine, uh, what doctors as a magazine. Prior to that, it had been a newsletter for all of those years. And I remember being on radio shows with a couple of doctors who were calling me mad for um, talking about how dangerous the HPV vaccine is. And there is so much evidence that has come out in the US, in Canada, in places like Japan about the dangers of this vaccine, about young and healthy young women, um, sporty women, just having a normal, normal life or young girls taking this vaccine and being crippled, being getting chronic fatigue or dying. Um, and some of them just being impaired for the rest of their lives. So it's so shocking even the person who developed the HPV vaccine, the person who, who, dis, who discovered it and developed it, has had some questions about it. And so at very least, these kinds of things need to be recognized and looked into. The other thing about the HPV vaccine is, as you may or may not know, the American government's got a um, adverse event database, the vaccine adverse event um, reporting system, as it's called VAERS, which is supposed to be there for, for people and doctors mainly to report side effects from vaccines. And there's a fund there to pay for children who get damaged from it. So this is tacit acknowledgement that vaccines do cause damage in some children. And by far, the largest reporting of side effects is on the HPV vaccine, by far. So this leads you to question why, and why on something that, again, is just a just-in-case kind of procedure. It's not for people, you know, it's not for anything they have or they're going to be exposed to. It's if they might get exposed to um, the uh, human papilloma virus and 
And by the way, the HPV vaccine only knocks out a couple of those. It doesn't deal with all of them, including some of the main causes of cancer. So you have to ask, why is this causing the biggest problems? And it comes, it possibly comes down to aluminum again. And I am so thrilled that the Cochrane people are trying to raise money to look into this. But Brian, it's an outrage to me mm-hmm. that they have to, we have to find the public money to pay for this. Yes, I mean, it's quite extraordinary that um, you know, health agencies around the world do give a blanket assurance to parents that vaccines are safe. And yet when you dig a bit deeper, you discover that oftentimes this statement is based upon a study group of 300 people. And, you know, any scientist worth their salt, aluminum or otherwise, would say that, um, you know, you need a much, much bigger study group in order to really definitively state whether something works or doesn't work, is safe or isn't safe. And 300 just doesn't cut it. And the number of times where alternative remedies have been poo-pooed because it's been a small study group. And, you know, it does seem extraordinary to me that um, one rule applies to one and and we see this quite often. And so, you know, so look, the point, the bottom line is these guys need money, 550,000 euros. And uh, if you feel so moved, please look it up and see if you can donate. I think really what we have to understand as, you know, as citizens and parents um, is that you're not going to get the real story from government agencies. You aren't going to get the truth. We saw that in spades uh, now because, I mean, the government agencies are populated. They're dirty now. They're populated with a lot of ex-drug company people. Certainly that's the case in the U.S. with the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control. They're populated by ex-drug people. They used to be the good guys. Now they're the bad guys. And what shocked even me after all these years was a recent whistleblower from the Centers for Disease Control who came forth to say, you know what? We doctored that study of the MMR vaccine. The, the very study that was supposed to um, tell everybody and, and, and put to rest the idea that the MMR causes autism, uh, autism. Now, that's what it was meant to do. What it actually showed was an increase in autism among a certain sector of the population. And that got buried. So we can't necessarily count on the drug companies. We can't count on the government agencies to tell us whether this stuff is safe. It has to be done independently. And thankfully, these people are starting this. So please, if you care about this subject, it's really vital because I think this is going to be the thin end of the wedge that starts more examination into vaccines. Hmm. Okay, on another topic. How's your gums, chum? (laughs) Gum health is absolutely key to so many diseases, they have now discovered uh, that, well, they did discover that it's related to heart disease. And now a new study has come out to show that it also seems to cause or develop a certain number of cancers. Now, what they don't know is the mechanism, because heart disease and cancer are both inflammatory diseases. 
So is it that the system is inflamed, which then manifests in bad gums, bleeding gums, or is it that the gums trigger the heart disease or the cancer? But whichever way around it is, and no one is entirely sure right now, they are most definitely linked. Um, the, um, the most, uh, I suppose, the most uh, dangerous form is a 28% risk for um, uh, lung and rectal cancers. They are the most common ones which seem to be associated with gum disease. And it was a big study. It was not your usual 300 vaccination study. It was 7,500 people. Who they who they track for twelve years? So this is quite substantial research here, and I think it's you know very very interesting that they're now discovering this vital link. Which was I mean you you had guys pioneers in the thirties, were they were pointing this stuff out, and they've been ignored for years and years ago, and we see this all the time, of course, and yet now they're finally coming around and saying, oh God, you know what, they're right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, here's the interesting thing about the gums. And in fact, the rest of the body, perhaps the secret to this actually is a microbiome. I mean, one thing that a panel member called Dr. Sarah Myhill, a very brave and renegade GP in the UK and one of our panel members for the uh, what docs, has maintained is that one thing that helps gum disease and the gut is high-dose vitamin C. Why? Because it kills the bad bugs and helps the good bugs. Um, and the bad bugs, what we're really talking about is a proliferation, a proliferation of bad bugs that overwhelm the microbiome. So you can see the gut doesn't just have it. The mouth has it too. And there's that symbiotic relationship. Hence why maybe there's this relationship between gum disease and colorectal cancer. So we're finding out more and more about the, the microbiome that's around the entire body, that we, you know, we need good bacteria everywhere. And that's what makes it so vital. Get your gut sorted because it's, it will probably also sort your mouth out too. Very interesting. Yeah, I think there, that's true. I think there is this gut connection. It's the third part of the triangle in a way as well. It's so, so essential. Anyway, we're coming to the end of our first podcast. And for those who are looking as a vlog, may have noticed Lynn and myself aren't that young. In fact, we... Speak for yourself. Right. In fact, we both celebrated our birthdays in the last few days. I was just 30. Yeah. And um, anyway, the news for us and for anyone out there who wants to say looking as young and zestful as we do is that blueberries and dark chocolate are the way to go. They're full of flavonoids and these help you stay looking young and zestful and wonderful. So um, they, there are other things which also have flavonoids. It's all good news, this dark chocolate, you eat blueberries for breakfast, right? And red wine, that also has a beneficial effect, stays us looking, looking young. And the woman who did the experiment was from University of Exeter. And I'll read out her statement because it's so Brilliant and so uplifting for us all. When I saw some of the cells in the culture dish rejuvenating, I couldn't believe it. These old cells were looking like young cells. 
I repeated the experiment several times, and in each case the cells rejuvenated. So on which note, we could now depart for a glass of red wine, some dark chocolate, and maybe have a bowl of blueberries. It's, what it, say you? It sounds pretty wonderful to me. And, uh, you know, it just adds to the huge amount of evidence about uh, red wine and that component of red wine. I hope I can pronounce this right, which is resveratrol. Resveratrol. Yeah. And what's really interesting is I'm just looking into more evidence that resveratrol uh, is being used Have you had a glass of red wine, by the way? (laughs) Could explain the problem, but anyway, okay. Um, That substance um, is now being used for intravenous cancer treatment. So that's how powerful it is in terms of changing cellular communication, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, feel free to pour yourself a tipple <laughs> and eat it with some dark and have it with some dark chocolate there too. There you go. Well, look, great stuff. Thanks very much, Lynn. And um, we're What Doctors Don't Tell You. Check us out, WDDTY.com. We have a magazine that comes out every month. It's in stores across the US and the UK. And we're also under license in 14 other countries. So stay tuned. Hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks. Bye for now.